Everybody, and welcome to True Stories of Tinseltown. And I have a great guest for you today, uh, Jeremy Arnold. He has been on before. We did our Ho 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 Christmas show, Ho Ho Ho. And um, today we're going to talk about uh, Jeremy's, um, I guess, is this your third book for TCM? Yes, it is. It's The Essentials Part Two, correct? Yeah. Uh, yes, the Essentials Volume Two. <laughs> yes, Volume Two. Yes, it is. It's not like a part two of a movie or anything like that. And um, your first one was so well received, and this one you you just really chose great movies. And basically, this is you get to choose from. Like you said, it's hard to choose, right? You see, because I had to choose certain movies that we would talk about. Because of course, we're not going to talk about all of them. It's fifty-two movies, right? 52. That's right. And yep. so um, you chose from how many essentials are there? 300 and something? Yeah. Uh, well, first, thanks for having me back. It's great to talk to you about this. And uh, yes, you are uh, Turner Classic Movies, TCM has shown 318 fi- uh, different films on the essentials over the last uh, 20 years. Wow. And so 52 of those were in the first book and 52 more are in this one. Will be will there be a fifty two more? <laughs> well, I, it's a bit early to know, but yeah, there's certainly there's room for a volume three at some point. But we'll it was see. up to you to choose which ones would go in volume one, and then again, well, you had to pick which ones would go in, in volume two. Yeah, I mean, to to be fair, it was sort of the it it was a joint decision. I mean, it you know mostly it was me, but both the publisher, Running Press. Mm-hmm. And the people at Turner Classic Movies definitely had some, you know, had a lot of input. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, this is TCM's baby, The Essentials. And, right. you know, they want to represent it in, in a certain way, and that's fine. So, but we were all on board for wanting a good sampling of the films and, you know, to include a lot of different types of genres and filmmakers and eras and so forth. So, um yeah, you know, there. I mean, I came up, I drew my own list, and then there was a bit of horse trading. And, you know, they, they were like, "Well, we really want this one," and so I, you know, then we, you know, there, there's a reason Gilda isn't in this one, and that's because we had Laura and Mildred Pierce right right in that same era, and it just seemed like three movies that were all so similar. One of them had to go. You know, nothing against Gilda, but um, that's the kind of thing that was going on. The eeny, meeny, miny, moe, okay, which one do we go (laughs) kind of deal. But I have to say, I liked, you know, I like Gilda, but I like the other two much better, Mildred Pierce and Laura, for different reasonings. But I want to talk about my first choice um, that we should talk about. And you and I agree on why it's an important choice, and that is Sunrise. Sunrise, yes, uh, 1927, uh, brilliant uh, F.W. Murnau-directed silent film. Um, And, yeah, we were talking before about how this is a great gateway for people into silent movies if they they haven't had a lot of experience with them, don't really know much um, about them, haven't really seen many. uh, You know, uh, certainly if people know silent movies more for comedies, which right. is probably mm-hmm. most common among people who aren't real, you know, movie aficionados. They've seen Chaplin or Keaton. Right. But this is, you know, this is a, a, a melodrama, a drama. And um, it um, is it's a perfect introduction because it is so visually told and so intensely emotional. Oh, you know, anyone is. can get this movie and follow along with it and and feel the effects of the story. It is wonderful. And, you know, like I I said, I was one of those people when you said that that's why you chose it, because I had just been happening to, uh, you know, I was watching TCM and then they have Silent Sundays at midnight. And I was like, I can't sleep. So I watched it and I just couldn't 
not watch it once I started. It was wonderful. And that was my... my first thing into it. I mean, not all silents are great. Let's face it. Some are hammy, some are this, some are that. But there are some real gems out there. And this was the first one I saw. And it, it was a winner. It's so good, you guys. I would highly, if you are like, oh, no, it's a silent film I can't watch. I totally recommend this. Great choice, Jeremy. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, um, it as I write in the book, this is a melodramatic story. Mm-hmm. You know, a husband almost kills his wife, and then he doesn't, and then he sort of has to has to win her back. And on paper, it sounds absurd. Like, why would she go back? But, but the the movie makes us believe that they will that they find a way to sort of rechristen their love for each other, re- rediscover each other, and um, it really the substance becomes not so much that story, but just emotion itself. And, um, you know, we, the, we feel everything in this film so strongly from the love and the tenderness to or the wicked the, city the, woman the fear. <laughs> yes. There's a wicked city seductress who looks sort of Margaret like uh, Louise Brooks, you know, that kind of hairdo and, and, and the way Murnau shoots her with, you know, claw like <laughs> and expressive lighting, it's really yes. dramatic and, uh, unforgettable. Uh, it, it's a, and also, this is a very innovative film in the way that Murnau brought German um, expressionist techniques to Hollywood and with uh, very dramatic uh, lighting that would influence film noir, uh, forced perspective. There were sets of – there's a set of a city that was built on the Fox lot where, you know, when you build in perspective, you've got things in the background that are very small and things in the foreground that are very big, you know, like, like – excessively big and small to create the effect, the, the illusion for the audience of much more space than there really is. And, um, you know, some of the doors in the background of the city were only two or three feet high. Some <laughs> of the extras walking around in the far background were actually dwarves ah, or children. And so, that's you know, fascinating. that's not the thing yeah. you notice when you see it, but it, it creates to the effect. Yes. We should say who, who stars Janet Gaynor and, What's that? Uh, George O'Brien. George O'Brien. And they both do a fabulous job. And um, Janet, wasn't she nominated for the, one of the first Academy Awards? Was this one of the movies? Because they nominated her for three films. Was this one of them? Yeah. 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 Janet Gaynor won. She was nominated that year for this was a year where the Oscars covered two years mm-hmm. and um, or at least a year that you know, went not from Jan that sort of started in the middle and went to the middle. And so she was nominated for a combination of Sunrise, Seventh Heaven and Street Angel, all of which are brilliant films and performances. And she she won. She was great. And I can't say enough about it. It is an essential. It is a silent movie. But remove your prejudice about silent movies. And if you can catch it, catch it. It is really, really good, very emotional, very – it just draws you in. You can't stop watching. And you know what? Yeah. I turned – it's so funny. I'm watching it, right? I'm turning up the volume. I'm like, what are you doing? It's a silent movie. But they did have, like, music in the background and stuff like that. But, you know, there's no dialogue. I stop. Anyway, that was the my first choice because it was right there front and center – Another one I chose, because I'm kind of interested why this is an essential, even though I've watched the movie many times and I like it, Freaks, 1932, I believe. Yeah. There's another one you can't stop watching, but for different reasons. Yes. Yes, definitely. Um, I mean, this is this is a really famous movie because it was so badly received at the time. It destroyed the careers of its its director um, Todd Browning, correct? Todd Todd Browning, who mm-hmm. was a, a brilliant visionary who'd made uh, silent films as well. And uh, he only made a, a few more films and then basically retired to a life of seclusion. Terrible. Uh, but he did live long enough to see this film get rediscovered. Um, I think he did. It was right around the end of his life, I believe. It played in, at the Venice Film Festival in the early 60s at some point. And it was reassessed as this classic Um 
the thing is, this is a film that it's set in a, a carnival uh, sideshow, a, a, a carnival, and the, the characters that we latch on to are the so-called freaks, the, right. you know, disabled people. Uh, you know, the, they the, don't have limbs. They're hermaphrodites. The they're Siamese twins, the, day, the Hilton sisters. Or, right. Exactly. They yeah. call them the and, pinheads uh, or, or whatever, people without limbs, or just little people. You know, whatever. And exactly. So the idea is that they are, you know, horrible to to look at. And at least that's, you know, that's the sort of guiding idea of this. But the point of the film is that they're humanized. And we, you know, the, uh, our challenge as an audience is to, you know, gaze upon them and identify with them and care for them, which we do very strongly. And the, the real freaks are the the so-called normal people who, you know, try and manipulate them and Hans. betray them yeah. and treat them badly. There, you know, there, there's a melodramatic plot line going on here. Um, and, you know, when the, the freaks, you know, they try and guard their own. And when they go off and basically go on the attack at the end, it does become a little bit of a horror movie. It's classified as a horror movie, but it isn't really a horror no. movie until the very end. But don't you think um, in the 30s uh, – People were sort of like horrified. I don't want to look. I don't want to look at those people. If I want to look at them, I'll go to a freak show. I went to one when I was seven. My sister took us to a carnival. And I tell you, I I would never go to one again. I was only seven and I was horrified. And um, not because of... I just didn't like the seat. It's like I, I, I couldn't go to zoos. You know what I mean? Why are people in cages? Why are they laughing at them? Why are they... You know what I mean? I just couldn't get that. But did you see how I think they had banned most of the performers and they could not go into the main dining room? I think the Hilton sisters could. At MGM because, yeah, other MGM stars were disgusted by by having them in the cafeteria. So they had to be basically segregated. That's true. You know, Todd Browning was very sympathetic to them. He had – he – had wanted to do this story for several years. It was based on a short story. Um, and he had sort of grown up around circuses and had been friends with, you know, real life so-called freaks. Right. And, uh, you know, it's, if you notice when you see the film, the film never sh- portrays them, you know, in a circus ring performing. We're always behind the scenes with them as just normal people. Right. And um, that's definitely by design. Um uh, it also should be noted that originally you know, this film, it only exists in a 62 minute running time, but originally it was about half an hour longer. You're kidding. And the scenes that were, that were cut were supposedly incredibly gruesome, um, at the end of the film. And they were the ones that at a preview screening caused people to run out of the theater and get sick wow. and grow up apparently. And so MGM cut all that out, released the film. Um, it got terrible reviews and uh, it just it created a reputation that it didn't really deserve. It still is very effective at 62 minutes. Um, I watched it. You know, I watch it probably once a year or once every two years. And um, it's funny because, you know, who they wanted to play, they wanted um, Myrna Loy and I know they wanted Jean Harlow Um to play the part that Leela Hyams played. And I think they wanted Myrna as Cleopatra. And they, I think a lot of it was they had such heavy accents, like the Cleopatra lady and the strong man, that um, a lot of people, you know, they were very heavy accents they had. But they were good and they were horrible people. They were the freaks. but And then they had the brother and sister Daisy and Harry, who we've seen Harry, if you watch any of these movies, what was he in? The With um, Lon Chaney, you know, he played like a baby in it, but they were robbers. They all met at a freak show. I can't remember the name. So I'm not going to ask you to remember mm. the name. Okay, I, I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but it's an interesting watch. And And what do you want people to take from this movie? Well, I think, I mean, I, you know, I, I think people, when they watch it now, will react probably the way I react now, which is just one of compassion for these, both the characters and the actors who played them. Yes. Um, that is really the overwhelming emotion. It, you know, a horror movie is is 
a good horror movie should be about producing dread and fear, really dread. There is that here, but mostly it's uh, just compassion for them. And the whole story is is set up to be about that so that we are on their side. Right. They go after They're living their everyday life, them. you know, like the woman, the bearded lady has her baby and they all come in and celebrate. And well, the wedding scene between Hans and Cleopatra what is it? Uga Gaga Uba Gaga. Well, that's that's one of one the, of that's us, one of the most one of bizarre us. scenes in Hollywood yes. history. Yes, so <laughs> the, you the wedding feast. if you have not seen Freaks, I do say it is something interesting to watch, and you do feel total. You know, I don't feel revolted by these people. My heart is is just there to know that, and they're just trying to live their lives, and this is. This is their family. There's, they are family, supported, you know, by each other, and not, you know, not, uh, not just living, living their life through the exactly through the circus. Yeah. So it's a very interesting film, that is for sure. And it is, I can't believe it was going to be a half hour longer. I don't. I mean, they must have been really gruesomely and <laughs> taking down well, everything. I mean, yeah, they're. Yeah, there there must have been a whole other um, extension of a storyline. I, I don't know if it was literally half an hour. It might have been 20, 25 minutes, but it, yeah. it was a good chunk of time for and sure. It th- that's wasn't totally to lost. Minutes. Nobody's ever found that. That's like that's gone right, to the wind. Okay, yeah. the next choice I picked was 20th Century. That was what, 1934, correct? Yes. And why did you choose 20? This century. Well, this is—I mean, it's a, this is a movie that really kickstarted the screwball comedy genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, it came out just a few months after it happened one night, which is the other film that right. helped to kickstart that. But it happened one night is is also more of a romantic right. comedy, and Twentieth Century is is really pure screwball. I would say it's the first truly fully formed pure screwball comedy. It, you know, yes, there are other films even beyond it happened one night that were precursors of screwball. No, no question about it. But this one, I think this one is the first pure one because it, it's like the whole raison d'etre of this film, the whole, uh, the, the substance of it is this, the screwball quality between these two characters played by John Barrymore and Carol Lombard. He's a theater producer, a theater director who has created this star um, out of Mildred Plotka. <laughs> Mildred Plotka turned her into Lily Garland. And so she has decamped for Hollywood and, and become a big film star. And he is down on his luck and tries to lure her back so he can have another stage hit. And the whole movie is this like push pull between them as they try and manipulate each other, seduce each other, not sexually, but sort of, you know, to try and. Um, bring the other around to, to their way of thinking. And most of it is set on a train, the 20th century, um, as they, they try. He tries to lure her back and she tries to resist. And, and that, you know, that creates these great comedy uh, set pieces between them, which is where the screwball element really comes oh, out. And there's a wonderful cast of supporting. That's what I was just going to say. Oh, my God. Roscoe Carnes, whom I adore. You know what I found out? I always wondered, you know, he looked like Roscoe Carnes reminds me of a friend of mine. And then in It's a Wonderful Life, um, the brother of George reminded me of my friend. And then I find out that that's his father, Roscoe Carnes, is <laughs> Harry mm. Bailey's dad. But he's fabulous. Yeah, crazy, isn't it? These, these connections are something. Walter Connolly, um, whom I adored. And the director, um, Howard Hawks, I mean, he really, you know, he he was a director who was so at home in just about every genre. Right. And, uh, you know, we I, Westerns, sci-fi, comedy, film noir, I mean, musicals, everything. And um, he really deserves a lot of credit for um, establishing a lot of the elements that would come to define screwball, including overlapping dialogue, which he was a real master of creating. And that is definitely in evidence here. Well, I have to say, this is probably my favorite John Barrymore performance. I laugh so hard at him. He is a riot. And this is really, Carol was acting prior to this, but she did dramas. She wasn't thought of as this comedian, this big slapstick star, this great, you know, comic actress. And this was her kind of, you know, 
you know, ta-da, this, this, and Trey. You know, this made her into yeah. a comedy star, right. no question. Mm-hmm. And she credited Barrymore with, for, well, and Hawks, too, but she really, I mean, she and Barrymore really became close on this. He, he thought she was the finest actress he ever worked with. And, um, you know, he also, it's, I think a lot of people know Barrymore mostly for this film and maybe for Midnight and his supporting right. character in 1939. But this this is sort of, you know, this is his last major role. He descended into alcoholism and really had, had a lot of trouble. But yeah. this is really a, him sending up his romantic silent screen image. Uh, this was <laughs> unusual for him to do this kind of comedy. So um, but it's kind of hard to know that if you haven't if you're, if this is the way you're going into his career, right. which is kind of ironic. But he's fabulous, and he, I fabulous. laugh my head off. What's the name of the actor that puts up all this repent, Jesus save stuff? Etienne Girardot. Yeah, yeah. He, he also played that role on stage. This is based on a stage production, and uh, uh, yeah, he's he's hilarious. It's a great movie, and I, you know, it's funny to see the sort of the beginning of. Carol Lombard's comedic acting career. And like I said, John Barrymore, perfection, laugh, laugh, laughed, laughed my head off at him. Yeah. Now this, the film, it's aged really well, I think, 20th century, but it was, it was not a success when it came out. It was, um, it, it was a box office dud. Variety said it was too smart for general consumption, you know, too sophisticated. Um, that, that may be the, the reason. Um, but it just, you know, even though it did, do a lot for Lombard's career, it wasn't a hit, which is kind of an interesting, uh, you know, contradiction in a way, but she did go on soon thereafter. I mean, she, you know, did My Man Godfrey and I mean, which was huge. So, um, you know, one I liked yeah, better than My Man Godfrey. Loved it in Hollywood noticed. What was the one she did where she's playing, she pretends <laughs> that she's dying of Pluto, <laughs> whatever, she's dying of radium poisoning <laughs> with Frederick March. What the heck is the name of that? I just love that movie. Um, um, more, I like My Man Godfrey, but this one I think is a riot. I can't think of the name. If I think of it, I'll say it. Okay. So how about Dodsworth? Dodsworth. Um, this is such a masterpiece of a film. Talk about aging well. This I is love timeless. This is one of my this favorite is, movies. It, yeah, mine too. And also I should say this was one of Robert Osborne's favorite movies, the late host of TCM. So I was oh, especially glad yeah. to include this film. And, you know, the, like in the first book, I have excerpts of the on-air introductions from the Essentials host when the films played on the Essentials. Mm-hmm. And so Robert Osborne's name and um, words are sprinkled throughout the I book. I love that. I was yeah. really glad to be able to, to I do. miss him. He was my comfort man. I just love that guy. And so Dodsworth is, you know, I say it's the most mature marriage movie ever to come out of Hollywood. And I, I think agree. that's probably still the case. And it's the portrait of a marriage um, disintegrating, breaking down. Uh, but it's done so with such sensitivity and honesty. There are scenes where Walter Houston and Ruth Chatterton are, you know, they have scenes that develop into arguments. And the way that they start in sort of a um, a feeling of calm and it gradually builds into the shouting match that that is the kind of thing that is so real. And um, you can even, you can tell he doesn't want to be arguing, but he, you know, but she, and she's so in this case, she's deluded by the, the, these issues of age. She's having trouble confronting the fact that she's getting old. And of course it's like in the film, what is she like? 30 something or I can't remember the well age. she lies first she says um oh I, I just turned 35 but she has a 20 year old daughter so I'm saying she got married she could be 40 maybe For, yeah I mean she is of course she's not you know the movie makes it she makes it sound like she's you know 80 or something right but, which but, but um, in that the, time I guess that's what point, it was right, the, <laughs> you might as well the, the, the point is she can't handle the fact that she's getting older and she just wants to be, you know, living life and running around the world. And, and, and Walter Houston wants to settle down. He's just retired from his job running this big corporation and say that they, they go on this, this cruise and she starts flirting with a young David Niven in his first feature film. I didn't know that. I found that out from your book. I didn't know that was his first feature film. Yeah. And, um, John Payne also makes his debut in this Mm -hmm. film later on. Um, 
And so she starts running around with all these European playboys, and Walter Houston tries to keep the marriage working. But at a certain point, you know, it just doesn't. And he ends up meeting this, you know, radiant Mary Astor, and they— Well, he met her on the boat as well. No, that, that's right. And it starts mm-hmm. just as, as a friendship, but then mm-hmm. it turns into love. But you really get the sense that it wouldn't have if his marriage to Ruth Chatterton hadn't broken down because of Ruth Chatterton. And so it's, you know, it, things happen and life happens. And, um, you know, uh, it, it, I guess what I, what I like about it is that you 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 sympathize with all these characters, including Ruth Chatterton. I mean, you feel sorry for her that she can't really get a handle on what is really important in life. Um, and you know, life passes her by. And I guess I'm I'm giving away the ending. You're not now, really but, giving but, away uh, the ending, but I just wanted to, to mention this: is that Ruth wanted to play her without any redeeming qualities. That's right. That's right. She wanted to just be a, basically a nasty bitch. I mean, and, um, you know, and she was basically, but you could see moments. Yeah. There is that in the film, but it also, you, the, the film definitely, you know, and Weiler who directed William Weiler really did a great job of giving her just enough audience sympathy so that the, the, it becomes a, a real tragedy, a poignant tragedy and not some, you know, simplistic, one-dimensional characterization. Right. No, I thought she was great. I really did. Who did I talk? I talked to somebody. Oh, I talked to my friend. Do you know John DeLeo? He writes a bunch of books. Um, he's a I, good author. I know of him, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. he came on and he said, um, who is the woman? Faye Bainter? Because uh, John yeah. Houston pay- played Dodsworth, I think, for 300 performances on Broadway. And Faye Bainter played, uh, who is a lovely actress, don't get me wrong. She played Fran on stage. He thought it would have been better if Faye Bainter played it. But I said no, because she wasn't Fran for the film. She couldn't be Fran for the film. I didn't believe but who knows? Yeah, I, I think so, too, because Ruth Chatterton had a whole history as a star, um, you know, I mean, going way back. Mm-hmm. And so audiences would have like I think that would have contributed to the idea that she was getting up. She was getting old. She was, right. She was she should be in a different stage of her life. Uh, yeah. And she was, you know, you like not trying to still be the character she played, you know, 15 years earlier that that kind of unconscious thing that we all bring to movies when we see stars that we've been growing up with over, over time. Um, I don't know that Faye Bainter would have brought the same kind of persona. I don't believe that either. They needed, they needed Ruth. And um, in Mary Astor's biography, you stated as well that she said that um, Ruth was that character almost because she was very upset about aging and, um, she, you know, she was not happy about it, but she said she played the role to perfection and she, she, she rocked it and she did. Oh, and no question. Yeah. All, all three of them are, are perfect. What about that Mad? What is, I always can't pronounce that woman's name. Madam. Oh, Maria Uspenskaya. Yeah. Um, who, uh, yes. Uh, who plays this, uh, this, very stern mother. German <laughs> mother, yes. Who berates Ruth Chatterton. She sees right away what's going on. Yeah, she wants to she marry on- Ruth. Ruth wants to marry her son, Kirk, who's younger than her. And he, he's a count. That's right. But they're poor. That, that's right. And Uspenskaya says, you know, what What you, What you? would you, the old wife of a young man, like, you mm. know, cannot be happy. And she just lays it out there. And she's only on screen for a few minutes. And she's sitting in a chair almost the whole time. And she um, uh, got an Oscar nomination. Um, and she won, didn't she? She, she won. Uh, no, actually, I don't think she did win. I think it was just a nomination. Uh, um, and But she's on screen for like five minutes. Yes. And this was the first year that there even existed a category for Best Supporting Actor or Actress. Um, she was very – the two of them were great in that scene together. They really – you know, you could see Fran trying hard and, you know, even just saying I'm a wealthy woman. And just the way that woman sat there just steel strong, you know, with her stick and, you know, her black veil and everything. 
That was a very good scene. I love that scene. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie, actually. And Uspenskaya had trained with uh, Stanislavski. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, she she's a Russian actress, and she had other small parts in films for a long time to come, including the original Love Affair. She's fantastic in that. Oh, I um, love her. Was also, That's my she favorite was also version. An, an acting teacher. Yeah, she she was also an acting teacher, and yes. Um, you know, taught essentially early method acting. So, um, yeah, she was very famous in in Hollywood. But I love that movie. I thought it was wonderful. Why don't we move on to, this was history, kind of. I don't think there's ever been another movie made like this. The Women, where there is absolutely not one male in the film, not even the dogs. <laughs> That's what they say. I'll have to take them at their word <laughs> I wasn't able to check. Uh, <laughs> Nor was I. I wasn't into um, looking. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the the women is really irresistible. Um, it is so racy and juicy. Mm-hmm. You know, women being catty towards each other, and um, it was a huge hit. And yeah, it sounds like a, like a gimmick. Every single character on screen, and there are a lot of there's, there's some. It's a huge cast, including extras and supporting characters, all women. Well, it actually it works really, really well because you it is so smart about putting them in in scenes where there would naturally only be women without the audience sort of feeling like the movie is trying too hard to make it work like that. It feels very natural and, and of a piece with itself. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Cause and, it's not in many sets. I mean, you're at Mary's when at luncheon, you're at the beauty place, you're at Mary's house, you're at a fashion show, and then you're in the bathroom. <laughs> you know, at the club. Well, you're also, at, you're also <laughs> at, at like a, a Reno camp for divorcing. <laughs> and then one more thing, the department <laughs> perfume cosmetic department. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, so this was, um, you know, there's also a really famous confrontation between Norma Shearer and Joe Crawford. You know, their their characters are facing off against each other because, you know, the the husband of uh, Norma Shearer is, you know, has taken Joe Crawford as a mistress. And all the other women find out about it and start gossiping. This is sort of the crux of the story. But in real life, Crawford and Shearer were huge rivals on the MGM lot. So this was, you know, people knew this was like a real rivalry happening on screen as well. And it's very entertaining because of it. Uh, Norma Shearer had been married to uh, Irving Thalberg mm-hmm. um, at MGM. And so, you know, she he had been. The, the the belief was that he had been giving her all the plum rolls, and Joan Crawford had been forced to do the castoffs. She was the, had to do all the all the rejects, and Crawford resented that, and so that's that's why they hated each other. Um, and so Crawford played this sort of nasty character of of Crystal, and she said she's like, you know, I know this this might hurt my career because she's such a nasty the uh nasty character wasn't she also uh, called box office in, poison in story, i'm, so I'm sorry jeremy her. i'm sorry what wasn't she also at the time being called box office poison she was um and so you know joan crawford was able to reinvent herself many times in her long career right um i mean she she was a very astute you know, businesswoman uh, in that sense and knew exactly, you know, talk about comparing her to the Ruth Chatterton character in Dodsworth. Mm -hmm. Joan Crawford handled aging really, really well. At a certain point, he's like, all right, I'm going to start playing mothers. All right, I'm going to start playing, you know, bitches if if that's what it takes to reinvent myself. And she did what she had to do. And then, of course, whatever happened to baby Jane, she went into the sort of grand guignol part of her her career at the very end. (laughs) But Trog. There's always Trog. Yeah. Yeah, no. Well, we we don't have to talk about that one. That didn't make it. <laughs> that didn't make the book. Darn it. Yeah, <laughs> it hasn't been on the essentials. No, not yet. But is this- but yeah. This this was an example of her sort of reinventing herself. Now, it didn't. It this did not really um, lead right away to you know huge successful uh, roles and and acclaim because after this she was stuck doing very minor films again. And then she, she left MGM and went to Warner brothers and then it was Mildred Pierce that really 
reinvented herself again, which I know we're going to get to. Um, but this was very smart of her to, to take this role because it showed uh, that she was willing to you know, play whatever be was the necessary. Bitch. Be that bad girl. I love the, yeah. the line. It's the unforgettable line. Whenever Stephen doesn't like something or whatever, I take it off. When when Norma's saying, oh, not that. That's just too uh, obvious yeah. for Stephen. When, when he doesn't like something I'm wearing, I just take <laughs> just it off. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, that it's a fun movie. It's one you all should watch. And I think most classic movie fans have watched The Women, and it should be an essential, I'm going to tell you. So we're going to go from that to Val Luton and the producer, Cat People. This was his first movie he made, correct? Uh, Val Luton? For um, that, you know, the horror genre that, thing that he of, did. Yes, of, yeah. of that cycle of low-budget yes. horror films, yes. Um, and it's, I mean, they're all great, but this they is are. one of the best. Um, this was a, a series of very low budget B horror films made at RKO. Val Luton produced them. Various directors directed them. Jacques Tourneau. Uh, Jacques Tourneau, who did this one, also did one or two of the others. Mm-hmm. And so they were able to really sort of cut their teeth, these directors, and you know develop techniques that they would apply to their bigger films later on. Um, so it was a great training ground. But the, this film, Cat People itself, is just a marvelous um, a marvelous little gem uh, that holds up, you know, on its own. Um, it creates so much with so little. You know, they, they didn't have any money, so they used shadows to, you know, to both hide the fact that they didn't have much in the way of sets, but also to, to create the dread. In, in I the love office. that I read <laughs> that one of them did hand puffets to make it like it was <laughs> the leopard or that's, something. That's what he claimed, yeah. That for one scene, they just made uh, shadows with their hands against the wall. But it, it is a great film. It has so many wonderful scenes. It stars Simone Simon. And uh, Kent Smith, that's his first. That was his first role. Uh, not sure if that was his first role, um, but you know, this is you know, Kent Smith was a, you know, was not a major star. No. Uh, you'll find him mostly in B movies or supporting roles in, right. in bigger films. Um, Tom Conway would have been who I well love, known. who I adore. Um, yes, and Jane Jane Randolph is um, a favorite among B movie fans. She but I have to give her a big boo hiss in this movie. <laughs> I think she's t- horrible <laughs> man stealer. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. She is. And look, I mean, on paper, this is a, a story about a woman who thinks that she's descended from this European you know, race of people that could transform into panthers, into cat people when, when they got aroused emotionally in some Jealousy, way. any kind of jealousy, love, passion, anything right. like that. Yeah. And so she marries, you know, she marries Ken Smith, but she's, they, she won't go to bed with him because she's afraid that she'll kill him. Uh, she won't be able to help herself. And I what mean, I love. It sounds, it sounds ridiculous. It, it does. Sounds like just, but it's really great. And, and you Kent really Smith, believe it. Ken Smith says, <laughs> Irina, I'll wait as long as you need me to. And I think two weeks later, he's complaining, else, but I love you, Ollie. You know, and, and, you know, Irina had every reason to be mad at him and at her because she's the one, you know, she found, he wanted her to go to a shrink and he's telling all his problems to this woman. And what woman wants your husband telling this broad that you're not having sex with him because you think that you'll kill him because you're going to turn into a panther? You know, <laughs> really? Come on. And Yeah, well, that's really one of the joys of old Hollywood B movies with these ridiculous plots that you just <laughs> love and go with all the way because they, they just treat it so sincerely. And that's what we love about these, these this era, at least I do. I've been I watching a lot of B movies during the pandemic. Oh, I have too. I've I mean so many great ones on YouTube, you guys. There there are treasure troves if you look. Anyway, um yes, again with the cat people. So he gets fed up with her, but the scenes the, with Alice, that scene you talk about where she is walking, you hear heels click, 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 click. She's walking through, I guess it's Central Park because it's based in New York. And um then she kind of hears a click, click, click behind her, and she's—it's dark. I would never be walking in that thing. And um, 
she gets terrified. And and what a one yeah, I mean, what a suspenseful, what a great scene that is. She doesn't yeah, see it's a, anybody. It's a really famous yeah, no, it's it's a really famous scene even today. And you know, it's a touchstone for, for film editing, film film editors to how to create suspense purely out, out of editing. Yes. And then the one where she goes swimming, I love that one. <laughs> that's that's my favorite scene. Yeah. It's I very love ominous, that. It's great. Very ominous looking swimming pool. <laughs> it's a, well, it's, and go on. you know, if you you could even compare it to Psycho, not not that it, this is as great a film as Psycho, but just in that in Psycho, you know, the whole idea of being in the shower. And by the way, Psycho is in this book as well, but I, I didn't actually make this connection. But Psycho, of course, Janet Lee's in the shower, and so she's naked and at her most vulnerable, and that's why that scene. One of the reasons that scene is so shocking because we're, we could relate to being utterly defenseless in a moment like that. Well, Jane Randolph is in the middle of a swimming pool, and she thinks that there's a panther walking around the edge waiting to, to attack her. Who hates her and, guts. Because right, she, and, and again, she's like, you know, in a, just in a bathing suit in a pool of water, and like that's almost equally vulnerable. Um, so rather interesting. It is, and it's a, it's a very good movie, and it is – uh, Simone Simon is very good. I love that woman. She's she's in a couple of other like um, these Val Luton. He used a lot of people like Tom Conway played the Doctor Judd in another movie in Seven Victims, and he then in I Walked with a Zombie, and he used a lot of these people in other films of his. He would he would double it. But the woman who came up and said I was there at the wedding party. She was in The Seventh yeah. Victim. She was in uh, Curse of the Cat Woman or Cat People. Cat whatever. People, yeah. Yeah, but the funny thing mm-hmm. is that Simone Simon um, dubbed the voice of her when she That's came right. to the party. That's right. She speaks in Serbian, yes. I, I think. And um, and she's. I think she's her sister in the film. She says, and- she says hi, hello, sister. She didn't know who she was. Yeah. But she said hi, like... You're my sister, kind of thing, right? She's basically another Catwoman, <laughs> um, and um, yeah. So it's it's a very uh, it, that's a great moment. Also, I really want to point this out. That is a scene where they're in a restaurant having dinner, and when this woman comes over, and suddenly this normal, you know, safe feeling restaurant dinner scene becomes creepy and yes. scary and ominous. And the whole movie, uh, you know, it, it's a horror film that is set in modern day New York in very ordinary spaces, you know, at a shop, in an office, in an apartment. And, you know, it's not like they're in a in a cemetery or something no. like that. And so the film is able to make these safe places feel very ominous and scary entirely through style and um, artistic choices like well, lighting I, and so forth. But what I love too was when Irina enters the pet place and everybody, all the animals go wild. It's a great scene, isn't it? It's yes. such a great idea. So imaginative. Yeah, it's a great flick, and it's definitely an essential, and uh, it's fascinating. And, you know, I just am a huge fan of Val Luton-produced films, and a friend of mine gave me the whole series, the DVD series of it. And I, you know, not some are not as great as the others, but they're all very interesting. And this is fab. So next we're going to talk about... A love story, again, that can't be consummated. Brief Encounter. Uh, brief Encounter. Uh, everyone loves Brief Encounter. You know, it's I funny don't. It, oh, you don't? <laughs> no, that's why I wanted to do it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I love her. You know, I, was, I was just thinking that Brief Encounter kind of makes an interesting companion piece to Godsworth because they're both um, you know, they're both serious dramas um, about love. And the love that for some reason can't happening, you know, it's either breaking down in one film or right. it's forming, but is unattainable in, in this one. And it's very touching. And um, I, I mean, love, I, I love, I love Celia Johnson. And I told you, I saw the Holly and the Ivy. I adored it. And Celia Johnson was fabulous in that as well. But this especially. Well, and this is the film she's most known for yes. without question. Um and it's, you know, it's a very British film. Um, you know, there's a, a couple meet this set just before World War II, even though it came out at the end of World War II. 
and in a in a rural English town where these two people, these two married people meet at a train station and form just this innocuous friendship and then it over time turns into love and they fall passionately in love but they are torn about breaking up their families for each other and um so um you know it has <laughs> there's a great deal of this stiff upper lip british mentality and uh repression that is part of the story for sure well you hear but her it's, also, it's it's through her her exactly. narration that's what i was about to say yeah. i mean people often remember this film as a story about a couple that can't be with each other, but it's really through the prism of the Celia Johnson character. It's a woman's story. She's the heart and soul of the movie to me. Yeah, and we experience it through her. There's her voiceover carries us through the film. I wish she was um, dead. No, I don't. <laughs> you know, some of and, those <laughs> <laughs> You know, we it's it's an early exa- it's it's a basically a, uh, an early. Well, not early, but it's a very prominent example of the women's film, which was a genre that had to do with so-called women's concerns and issues at the time, and really about women having trouble, you know, um, living the life that they wanted versus a life that society said they should live. Yes, she's living the basic life. She's got a perfectly nice, kind husband. She has two kids. But a very dull one. Yes. A very dull one. And it's not a happy... is it a happy marriage? You, you could, one could debate that. It doesn't have the passion that she finds with, with Trevor Howard. But is that how important is that at a certain or point? Or I mean, would it have lasted? Issues. What would it have lasted? It's like when people always go, "Oh, I love the Bridges of Madison County." I was a kid when this was on, and I hated that movie. It's wonderful. You can be passionately in love for six days, then go on the road with them and have to pee outside and get leaves to, to wipe. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah, Six no, I mean, I, like, I'm, I'm not saying these these things are not debatable. See, <laughs> so this is my feeling. It's so. not about wiping yourself with leaves, peeps, but you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, you know, it also um, has a lot to say about um, England and British society, you know, class issues at the right. time. And the fact that we know the war is about to happen and they they don't really add a degree of poignancy to the film as well um it's it's a it's a beautifully made film it is. Yeah, at the very David least did a great job. i do yeah. and and i actually like the film but i don't see it as romantic as everybody else does because mm-hmm. for the fact the the, the famous scene where he's going to take her to his friend's bachelor pad but you know the next day he tells her when he sees her again after, you know, when he gets caught, she runs out feeling like she's the worst person in the world and, you know, a trollop and all this stuff. And he knows he's going, he's going to go to Africa. He's going to, he, he already chose to go to Africa. He said, if you don't want me to go, I won't go. But you know, he's going to go. He already said he was going to go. So to me, it makes me mad that he brings her there for that reason, knowing that he's going to go away with his wife and his family to do research. Do you get my point there? Yeah, I, I totally get your point. I, that's a very valid uh, criticism. Um, and it makes me want to protect her, you know, because I love mm-hmm. Celia Johnson. Do you know, this is a tidbit I want to give you all. Celia, her son said she had a hard time smiling and filmed in something because she fell down. She lost her teeth and she had to wear dentures. So if you notice Celia, she doesn't really, you know, show her teeth or smile very much. But that's what her son said. Tidbit. Nothing to that's do with the movie, but tidbit. But yeah, kind it of is. it does, right? Because she doesn't really give you that. She's just this woman that you... I want to hug her, you know, and say, Celia, you know, whatever her name is in the movie. <laughs> I just love her. Uh, yeah, Laura. Laura. I feel for her. because And he's... also, I just have to mention, this is directed by David Lean. It was the fourth mm-hmm. film he ever directed. Uh, so it's, you know, it's a pretty famous example of him starting to develop his um, directing style. He'd been a uh, prominent film editor for many years, so he definitely knew what he was doing in terms of constructing a, a film. Um, but uh, he'd only made three films as director before this, so very assured in this. Yeah, and but, it's based on a based on a Noel Coward play. Yes. Well, he also produced the film. And I want to wasn't he also the voice of the train, <laughs> the train station guy, Noel Coward? 
Oh, um, I think that, that was something I heard. I think that might see. be true. I can't remember. It I, wasn't I think in you're your right book, but I think I, I read that somewhere. Yeah. Um, I, I don't want to say that I didn't like the movie. I do like the movie, but I don't see it as romantic as everybody else sees it. Right. And I am a, I don't say that I'm some cynic, unromantic person, people, because that's not true. <laughs> I just, well, but also, that's it, my vision just, of it. I don't think Brief Encounter is just about romance. It really is also about a woman trying to grapple with these d- different desires and ways that she's being pulled in life and trying to sort of get a handle on all that. It's and not how just can she? Romance. But how can she, though? That's the whole thing. He can go off. And he How can any woman, every woman, right? Uh, right? That, <laughs> at that point, she so. was just stuck needlepointing and listening to music, and he's doing his puzzle. And he goes off to Africa, does his research, probably meets some cute nurse chick, and whatever. You know what I mean? It's a whole different story for him rather than it is for her, for Laura. But it is, I like the movie, and other people think it's like the most romantic movie ever. I'm. You know, to each their own. That's all I'm saying. I like the movie. Yep. I love her. Trevor Howard is very good in it. I don't want to say anything about him. He was very good. I just didn't buy it as this wonderful love story. Okay. So we're going to go, I think, how about this? This is a movie I was really happy to see on your list because I think so many people haven't seen it. Maybe they just don't get it because it's Andy Griffith starring in it, but it is amazing. And very pro- it's very, very current. It aged well. A face in the crowd. Yes, uh, this, is, this film has definitely been written about a lot over the last uh, four or five years. Um, you know, uh, I mean, a lot of people have made the parallels between Donald Trump and, and Lonesome Rhodes, played by Andy Griffith. Yeah, uh, demagogue. Many, I think many. Yes. I think many other politicians and, and public figures have sure. also, you know, were predicted by, by Lonesome Rhodes. Um, but, yeah, this is a, an Ilya Kazan-directed film with a script by uh, Bud Schulberg. And uh, Andy Griffith is Lonesome Rhodes, who's this, this Arkansas jailbird. Alleged hillbilly. Yeah. This hillbilly discovered by uh, Patricia Neal, who plays a radio reporter, and does this radio show and where she's interviewing sort of normal, you know, ordinary people in the county jail. And he becomes <laughs> he he has this populist sort of entertainer shtick, and he becomes very popular as this sort of plain speaking, you know, ordinary folk kind of a guy in Arkansas, and becomes this radio sensation locally, and then he gradually builds up more and more and more, and becomes a big New York-based television um, star. entertainer and populist, and starts then having a political influence, um, and starts to manipulate the the public with his power as an influencer. Talk about how this film is prescient. I mean, he right. even talks about how he is an influencer. Well, he brags about it. Look at one of the senators who wants to get elected hangs around. He's wearing a pair of overalls and like has a piece of hay in his mouth. (laughs) What is it? Pride check. What is the name of that stuff? That always (laughs) the name of that stuff that they would sing about all the time that he'd advertise. uh, Pride check. Yeah, I mean. Um, Vitajex, Vitajex. Yeah, which is like an early, it's like an early Viagra right. uh, type, type drug. So. Like, whoop, goes up. It's a riot. And, and um, so yeah. this is a satire of all of these things and the intersection of, of populism and entertainment and advertising and politics and, and lies media. And, and not and the person, not manipulation. Right. Absolutely. Like the, the face in the crowd, the mask that he wears for the people. And the contempt behind that mask that, that he, he has, has for, for the people because he feels yeah. they are nothing. And Patricia Neal is very good in this. Um, I love Walter Matthau. I thought, um, the uh, what's her name, that cutie pie who played his oh, first Lee Remick. wife? Lee Remick. Lee Remick was Remick. really good in this. And then who do we see who plays his first wife? But she seems like she's like 140 years old. She was a Barbara Streisand's mother and fun lady. What is her name? Can you think um, of her? You know who I'm talking about? That lady? No, actually, I don't remember. You don't remember I her? Seen the movie lately. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't remember who, who that was. But she was funny. She came in and, you know, 
Marsha didn't know about her, nobody. And she was going to go public, so they had to pay her off and get a divorce because he had married Lee Remick. Right, right, right. I can't think of her name, um, but she was great. Uh, yeah, you know, it's also worth noting, too, that this film was a was a box office bomb <laughs> when it came out. It, it got – it just did no business at all. Well, this was and, Andy's first movie, correct? Uh. Yes, he had. Yeah, Kazan plucked him out of the theater world. He um, he he'd been on Broadway, um, and you know I think it's the best thing Andrew Griffith ever oh, did. Oh, me too. Um, and it shows his range because you know, I mean, his son wrote a book, whatever. You know, he was not Sheriff Taylor, just catering to Aunt B. I think you know he's probably whatever, and you know, doing his thing. He was a, a regular human being. Allegedly, people. He had a thing with Helen Crump in real life. <laughs> he was having an affair yeah. with Anita Chris. I mean, he was a man. You know, he wasn't this like mythical good guy all the way. You know, and so he really that that was without a doubt the best acting he had ever done. It, it was amazing for his first performance, and I say it's an essential with you because you will be shocked. It doesn't sound interesting. A face in the crowd. It is so good. It is and so And I, I remember, good. you know, um, the, the playwright George Kaufman once said that satire is what closes on Saturday night. And, you know, the Americans have trouble with satire generally. And 20th century didn't do well. A face in the crowd didn't do well. And these are both great satires. Um but it has really stood the test of time and time. certainly been rediscovered long since. And when people come across it, they're pretty much astonished at how modern. How it, modern it and how great Andy Griffith is because they only they don't know him as that kind of an actor. That's and right. also, look, network. It was before network. And look how great, I mean, Network was like, you know, do you have like a psychic friend in there who's telling you what's going to go on years from now? Because it's amazing. Network as well. It's very similar. And yeah. Network is also in this book. And I, I do write about them together in print in this. So yeah, yeah they're, very, they're very much of, of a pair. They were uh, just amazing. Okie dokie. So after Facing the Crowd, which, you know, I love what you chose. I, there's so many, like you said, see, I had to choose from 300 and something and you had to choose from this. It's hard. And you're not kidding. It's hard. So one of the movies I chose, because I have talked about it before, but um, I'm interested in your take, was Vertigo. Yeah, this is a good one to go out on because some people, a lot of people consider this the greatest movie ever made. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I, I'm not going to go there. I don't know. Me I either. Any one movie for that, but I love Vertigo. I think it's brilliant. I love it too. But, you know, it's so funny because um, it was not on anyone's big great list. But I think about, I don't know, did it get, um, you know, how they remake the, you know, make the film better? restore it. And at that time, people started watching it and, and critics were saying it was like, if not the best movie ever made in the top 10 or top five. Well, I mean, I I, I think that the, the reason it is so admired is uh, because it does to the audience in their viewing of the film, what the story is doing to the characters in the film, especially James Stewart. You know, he's this he's a San Francisco detective who um, has this this incident that creates acrophobia, a, a vertigo, um, this condition that he suffers fear from. Of he, he can't deal with heights, fear of heights. And so he has to retire and he gets cajoled by an old friend to start following the man's wife around because he thinks that she is becoming sort of possessed by uh, someone who died a long time ago. It's this weird mystery. And so Stuart starts following her around San Francisco. She's Kim, played by Kim Novak, and he falls in love with her. Yeah, she's so enigmatic. She's so uh, – she's great as both and parts. She, so the, yeah. the obsession that he starts to feel for her and uh, this sort of dislocation yeah. is very much – turned by Albert Hitchcock into visual terms for the audience. And it's a very hypnotic film in the way, and which matches the way that Stuart is, in a sense, hypnotized. Right, exactly. And they show that with his head and the green and the whole thing. Yeah. 
Um, and so Hitchcock was just a, you know, he was a master at, um, at creating subjectivity with his audience and really putting the audience in that head of his main characters. And once he, once he was able to do that in any given film, he was able to start manipulating. And I mean that in the best sense of the word, manipulating the audience emotionally in whatever way he wanted. Like he's this puppet master, you know, moving us along on strings. He was, that was really where his brilliance lay really in, in the way that he told his story and let the audience experience the story exactly the way he wanted them to. I mean, every emotion that we feel is completely created, you know, devised by, by Hitchcock. Um, I'm not trying to take credit away from, from the writers and other personnel too, but it's really Hitchcock's mastery of, of narrative, uh, storytelling. And, um, you know, it, this film gets into some very, um, philosophical issues that have to do with, with filmmaking itself. I mean, the Jimmy Stewart character sort of becomes like a director trying to, um, have his leading lady, Kim Novak, dress a certain way, act a certain Change way, look hair. a certain way. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and it, there's a blend of, of reality and fantasy and, and real, reality and illusion in this film, which is really the core of, of movie making as well. So it's yes. a really fascinating movie on many levels. I love it. And I agree with you. You know, a lot of people don't think Kim Novak is that great of an actress and you know she has her good films and her bad films but I thought she was really great in this and I know he wanted Vera Miles to do this but she was pregnant and I think um you know Kim rocks it I mean she was really both those characters and then that poor Judy with those horrible eyebrows I don't blame Jimmy Stewart for wanting to to lose those it was like oh my god that's a good point (laughs) You're going to lose those brows, Judy. Anyway, you know, she was doing that and how she gets found out. But it is really an intriguing film. I remember the first time I saw it. It's it's like sort of seeing Laura, which we were going to get into. But it's so amazing when you see these films for the first time and you go, oh, my God. You know what I mean? You don't know that this is what the scoop is. And it's so, you know, it's so wonderful. It's such a great kind of kaboom to you. And, and the the score by Bernard Herrmann is wonderful. also one of the most famous scores ever written for for a film, and it really does a lot to to do what I described earlier about hypnotizing the right. audience in a way. It's a very well, he's um, a genius. I love his score. I love his scores, he, and he's done so many for Hitchcock. But um, yeah, I agree with you on that. And also, it, it's just a really interesting film. It had, I mean, James Stewart is dark in this film. He really is dark. As we were talking about, like, after he came home from the war and does what, I don't know which ones, we were talking about him and It's a Wonderful Life and other things that he did. He took on more darker roles, which he had to as he's growing. But this was the last film he did for Hitchcock, right? That's right. Yeah, he had done, after It's a Wonderful Life, he did this series of westerns with Anthony Mann. Uh, like the Naked Spur and mm-hmm. the Man from Laramie, where he really delved into the this darker side of his persona, exploring obsession and anger on screen in a way that he hadn't before, not to that degree. And so, Vertigo is sort of the ultimate culmination of all that. I mean, he's you know he is a very conflicted character, and you know he, he, there's a lot of darkness in uh, in the, this performance. Big ten. But he still overall has a persona as the, you know, Ashok's good guy. You know, he, that's really the dominant part of his persona. So there's a great tension there between those those two uh, extremes. But I don't think he played Ashok's good guy in this at all. Oh, um, no, no, no. I'm not, I'm not oh, saying you he mean played that about here. His... I'm saying that the audience brings yes. that perception yes. Yes, yes, to yes, everything yes. he does. Yeah. Yes. So it always feels like a shock if he isn't playing that. Yeah, but it was great. He did a really good job. And um, like I said, Kim Novak was great. One thing that got me, poor Midge, <laughs> Barbara Belgettis. I think she was only like 30. And I think he was 59. And they're supposed to have been college roommates and boyfriend and girlfriend. My poor Barbara. Yeah, she's making brassieres over here and drawing things. Kind of and- a thankless role. Right? <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> and she just loved that guy. Anyway... I had a blast again, Jeremy. This has been so much fun for me. And Thanks. I, I mean, you know, it's it's a good selection of films we talked about, and it just goes to show that 
essentials can come in all shapes and sizes. You know, not, not every kidding. essential is Lawrence of Arabia, right? Um, or Singing in the Rain or Casablanca. There are, you know, there are movies that are lesser known, that and that's why I like well. to choose them because I want to get them yeah, out so there. Any film can be an essential. Correct. It uh, has to do with the, the storytelling mm-hmm. and all sorts of other elements. Doesn't that, matter that come, the budget. Doesn't bear. matter if it was like at the time box office success or whatever. That's right. But Jeremy, I absolutely have had a wonderful time talking to you. I would love you. If you ever want to come on and talk about the essentials, the first essentials, because that would be great too. But if you'd like to do that, I would love to have you on for that as well. But, you know, maybe, maybe. Okay. Well, maybe let's let's talk in the future. Uh, you know, uh, I would be happy to at some point. I think it'd be fun, so, you know, because I yeah. – to talk about the other ones too, why these were the first ones you chose. So this book, guys, is The Essentials, Volume 2, 52 More Must-See Movies and Why They Matter um, by Jeremy Arnold and forward by our friend Ben Mankiewicz. So, Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on. You were fabulous, and I have a lot of fun, and I learn a lot when I read your stuff, and I, you know... Makes me want to look at movies that I haven't seen too. And that's Great. what it's that's, about. That's the main idea behind it. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you very much. And that, that is a truth. T R U F F F F. Okay, so thank you. <laughs> Take care. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Bye, everybody. Thank, thank you, you, Jeremy. Bye-bye. Bye. Stories of Tinsel Town.